Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, what can the Florida land boom of the 1920s teach us about the real estate market of the 21st century? Florida's economy has depended really through almost all the 20th century on real estate, land sales, and, and development and expansion. And uh, we sort of know, but we don't like to explicitly acknowledge that that comes at a considerable price. The money from that has to come from somewhere. Remembering the African-American school in Gifford, Florida. It no longer exists there, but it was a framed building. It had a big hall down the middle. The classrooms were on either side. And the drinking fountain was like a cow's trough. Studying the Sarasota School of Architecture. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. to tell me I was building a dream and so I followed the mob when there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there right on the job they used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done, brother Can you spare a dime? The dreary ballad, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime, was popular during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Economic disaster hit Florida a few years earlier than the rest of the country as the land boom of the early 1920s turned into a bust. During the first half of the 1920s, visionary entrepreneurs such as D.P. Davis, George Merrick, Addison Meisner, and his brother Wilson led an unprecedented economic development of raw land in Florida. Alan Bliss from the University of Florida in Gainesville says that Carl Fisher was a particularly visionary leader of the Florida land boom. Carl Fisher in particular was influential, I say, because he came from a background of being a a participant in this transformational technology of the automobile, a growing uh, technology in the early 20th century and one that really arrived on the scene at a critical time for Florida's experience. It, uh, it converged on Florida at a time when there was a great deal of interest in, on the part of Americans in expanding their personal space, their mobility, being able to travel to exotic destinations. The automobile made that possible. Road construction techniques 
appeared at the same time and helped facilitate that. Carl Fisher himself had experience as a builder of paved roadways and as a figure who had helped uh, instigate and uh, energize the first transcontinental highway, the Lincoln Highway. Uh, Fisher also uh, tried to replicate that event with the construction of the Dixie Highway, the first automobile highway that linked the state of Florida to the rest of the country. And uh, you can still find segments of the Dixie Highway, good grief, in lots of different spots in Florida, but predominantly along the East Coast Corridor, um, just sort of weaving in and out of the present-day trajectory of uh, A1A. There were other real estate booms in the 1920s in other parts of the country as suburbs expanded around urban areas, but as Alan Bliss explains, Florida's land boom was unique. Florida's land boom was particularly energized by the sort of the romanticism, the appeal of the exotic, uh, the topography, the geography, the biology of Florida, the climate, everything really sort of uh, struck visitors from the north, from the Midwest, from other parts of the United States as exotic and wondrous and romantic and appealing. Early Florida real estate developers sensed that and capitalized on it. They romanticized Florida as a destination and played up its role as sort of an exotic destination of vacation land, a place where people could really indulge their whims and desires. Uh, there has been a lot of scholarship done along the, uh, along the lines of the symbolism of, uh, of women and of uh, various uh, sort of semiotics of a tropical destination that were connected with Florida. The Florida real estate boom was one, though, that really particularly tried to advance the sale of real estate, not just for its utilitarian use, but also for its commodification as an investment. As a, as a means by which people could become wealthy. And one of the things that, uh, that particularly uh, helped was this fact that, uh, that developers like Carl Fishner, the Meisners, um, George Merrick, D.P. Davis, others that we've talked about at this conference this weekend, were these colorful, larger-than-life figures who lived large really sort of seemed to uh, burn across the sky in this spectacular kind of arc of, uh, of great achievement and uh, great largesse and, you know, maybe to a certain extent uh, kind of uh, a, a bit of a life of uh, dissolution to a certain extent. But at any rate, they appealed to, uh, to dreamers and other people who had great ambitions. And the suggestion, the sort of subtext of all of this was if you become – a part of our real estate boom here in Florida, you too can really sort of uh, hitch your hook into uh, to the coattails of these giants and maybe sort of live a larger-than-life uh, experience yourself as part of the Florida real estate boom. Real estate developers encountered even less regulation in the 1920s than they do today in Florida. They gave a hard-sell pitch to potential investors marketing Florida as a paradise to be bought and sold. Those who had funds to invest early on profited greatly. The early ones did, and the ones who came late to the party were the ones who got left without a place to sit down when the music stopped. A famous real estate developer from uh, St. Petersburg, Florida at the time was a na man named Walter Fuller. He had been a real estate salesman, became a speculator, investor, the developer of a hotel and country club in the St. Petersburg area, and he remained there for the rest of his life and wrote a book, A Retrospective Vision of uh, the Florida Real Estate Boom. He published it in 1954 called This Was Florida's Boom, 
And one of his telling comments when he analyzed the end of, the, of this uh, spasm in the 1920s was this, we just ran out of suckers, was his comment. And uh, it, really, that's a little oversimplified. There was quite a bit more going on to it than that. <clears throat> but it's, uh, it's part of the truth of the matter. People continued to bet recklessly, almost sort of promiscuously, on this idea that the boom would continue and that they, if they didn't get in, they would miss their chance to, uh, to get wealthy. And I point out that uh, really this sort of contravenes the fundamental laws of physics, right? If something cannot continue indefinitely, it will stop. And uh, every, every spasm, every, every economic expansion uh, that we know of in, in uh, modern economic history has had its, uh, its point of uh, ceasing to move forward. Two characteristics of the boom that I particularly call attention to, though, are that uh, this was the first real estate market event that uh, was so closely associated with the automobile. Nothing else in American history up until that point had really had such an intimate involvement with this new transformational technology. The other thing that's distinctive about the Florida real estate boom is that it was the last such real estate market event to be so lightly regulated. And that's one of the things that I think we can take from the experience of the boom. It set the stage for American citizens' willingness to consider a, a set of uh, regulations, rules, some rationalization to the development and the sale of real estate. We see for the first time <clears throat> the professionalization of the real estate brokerage business, uh, the establishment of, of some uh, formal professional organizational standards for real estate appraisal. We see the, uh, the first uh, willingness to embrace land use regulations, zoning regulations, and city planning. We see at the federal level the establishment of a, uh, of a set of uh, mechanisms to help rationalize real estate finance, especially home ownership, and a conscious attempt to promote home ownership. All of those things became part of the drumbeat of events that affected Florida and much of the rest of the United States in the 1930s and the 1940s. That set the stage for the, the really sustained economic and real estate expansion of Florida, which began, began in the years shortly after the end of World War II and continued more or less on a pretty steady arc until the end of the 20th century. And, of course, the, uh, the really powerful uh, spasm, the boom that uh, obtained throughout Florida <clears throat> in the first uh, five years, six years of the 21st century, the boom whose detritus we regard around us today. Alan Bliss presented his paper, The Remains of the Bubble, What Florida's Land Boom of the 1920s Teaches Us About the Boom of the 21st Century at the Florida Historical Society 2009 Annual Meeting. There are interesting parallels between the land boom of the 1920s and the subsequent collapse of the market and what is happening today in Florida. Well, obviously, we learned uh, we did not learn to recognize a uh, an over exuberant boom when we saw one, or if we did, we thought we would be uh, perhaps smart enough to get out before the music actually stopped. Uh, some of the consequences, one of the one of the damaging and large uh, social consequences of the collapse of the Florida real estate boom was massive indebtedness on the part of uh, Florida's cities. 
Uh, Tampa, for example, was over $14 million in debt to bondholders when the uh, decade of the 1920s ended. It cost the city of Tampa 28% of its annual operating budget just to service the debt on the bonds that it owed at that point. And those bonds represented money that the city had borrowed to uh, basically finance the growth surge of the boom. Other cities in Florida were in identical, if not worse, circumstances. Some of the smaller cities that had really been swept up by the growth surge of the 1920s, West Palm Beach, Boca Raton, Miami Beach, uh, places like that, were just staggering under a hopeless set of financial obligations. Uh, as people lost their, uh, lost their ability to pay for property that they had purchased, as they saw its value drop precipitately, uh, in many cases they either could not afford to pay the property taxes that they owed to the local municipality, or they just decided it was a waste of money to pay the property taxes and walked away from their property, uh, allowing it to lie fallow and to uh, be taken over in a tax lien sale by the local municipality, with the result that during the 1930s, many Florida cities wound up owning vast tracts of developed platted lots and subdivisions uh, from which they were collecting no tax revenue and for which they could extract not a dime's worth of, of uh, revenue from trying to sell it. How come? Because who would buy it under those circumstances? It was really sort of a triple threat to Florida cities. No tax revenue, less citizen engagement, a staggering burden of debt, and really no way to convert their, their assets into uh, money that they could use to pay their way out of difficulties that they had gotten into by trying to accommodate uh, the fabulous growth that everybody expected in the 1920s. What do we get from that as we look back on that from the 21st century? I think it suggests that, uh, that we in Florida have always been sort of ambivalent and perhaps short-sighted about paying for the growth that we really have worked so very hard to cultivate in this state. Florida's economy has depended really through almost all the 20th century on real estate, land sales, and, uh, and development and expansion. And uh, we sort of know, but we don't like to explicitly acknowledge that that comes at a considerable price. The money from that has to come from somewhere. Some critics of Florida's growth management in the, in the recent years have come to refer to Florida's economy as a giant Ponzi scheme. And uh, really, there's uh, a lot of truth to that. It's kind of ironic that uh, Carl Ponzi actually made a name for himself in the 1920s because there's, you know, kind of another reference to the idea that <laughs> we derive some of our habits and perspectives from that, uh, that, uh, that uh, intellectual inheritance from our experience of the boom of the 1920s. After the collapse of our most recent boom in the first decade of the 21st century, many Florida municipalities are again struggling to meet obligations they incurred to sustain our incredible growth, just as they did in the 1920s and 30s. Alan Bliss presented his paper, The Remains of the Bubble, What Florida's Land Boom of the 1920s Teaches Us About the Boom of the 21st Century at the Florida Historical Society 2009 Annual Meeting in Pensacola. Why don't you remember, I'm your pal, say buddy, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, ah gee we look swell, full of that Yankee doodly dum. Half a million boots, 
Went slogging through hell And I was the kid With a drum Oh, say, don't you remember They called me Al It was Al all the time Say, don't you remember I'm your pal Buddy, can you spare a This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously overturned their 1896 decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, which had sanctioned legal segregation. The decision in Brown v. the Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas, paved the way for the desegregation of schools. In Florida, that process would take decades. Janie Gould has this look at the African-American school in Gifford, Florida. In the era of segregation, black children in Indian River County went to school in Fort Pierce. Then, in the 1920s, someone donated land along US-1 for a school in Gifford, north of Vero Beach. Eddie Hudson went to school there in the late 40s. It no longer exists there, but it was a frame building. They had a big hall down the middle. The classrooms were on either side. And the drinking fountain was like a cow's trough. And it was sulfur water, right? Yeah. We didn't have running water in Gifford. Either you drill your well yourself and put your pitcher pump on it, or some people in Gifford were able to have an artesian well drill, but they would charge the families of small feet to tap into it. What did you have? Uh, originally, we had our own well. Then when our neighbor had a company to come in and drill a, an artesian well, my father was able to come up with the $50 to tap. But you still didn't have inside no, running we, water? No, we did not have inside plumbing at all. What was school like? We had excellent teachers. The only problems, and I didn't learn this until after the fact that the books that we got were all, always used. The kids, of course, in town used those books first when they were new. You mean the Vero kids? Vero kids, yeah. There were never enough. God rest her soul, Mrs. Bernice Johnson. I think she had 35 kids in the class. She may have had 10 spellers and 15 math books. It hurt her so bad that some of us didn't get books to take home. She found out where each one of us lived because back then we didn't have street names. So we had to describe to her where we lived. The streets weren't named? No. With the signs on the streets, no, we didn't have them. So Mrs. Johnson was one of the teachers that would get uh, names where you lived and if I live near you, she would then give me a math book to take home and maybe give you a speller. If I had any math homework, I'd get it done. Then I would bring that book to you. By that time, you should have all your spelling words done, and you would then give me the speller. What about lunch at school? You had to pay for the lunch. How much? And, um, I think it was 10 cents a day. 
With nine children in the Hudson family, school lunches were often out of the question. Their mother would make extra pancakes in the morning and send them to school in a bag. When lunchtime came, then we would all gather around. A more modern Gifford High School came along in the early 50s, but unlike Vero Beach High School, it didn't have labs or a gym at first. But Hudson has happy memories of growing up in Gifford. Kids played marbles and made their own toys. We'd make bird traps. We would take those birds home, clean them. My mother would uh, take the birds and, and cook a pot of rice and put the birds in it and make a meal. What kind of birds? Any kind that we could get. Bluebirds, redbird, cardinals, quail. Was this in your yard or in the woods? Oh, no, we'd go out in the woods. I'm surprised that none of us really got bitten by snakes. Were you barefoot yeah. a lot of the time? Oh, yeah. I went to school barefoot sometimes. But we had fun. I mean, there was no life like it growing up. Eddie Hudson and a brother used to hunt rabbits, which congregated in culverts in citrus groves. Some guy told us that what you could do is get a big sack, put it on one end of the uh, culvert, and then get something like a fishing pole and run it down the, the other end. And the rabbits would run out and get into the sack. Rabbits, of course, provided meals for us as well. My mother used to put the batter on it and fry it like chicken. A couple of years ago, I went out to one of the supermarkets and bought some rabbit and made a rabbit meal out of it. Very delicious, lean, very nutritious. Did it bring back memories? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Eddie Hudson earned a doctorate in education. He retired in 1995 after 34 years as a teacher and administrator. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. In the booming post-war period of the late 1940s, a group of innovative architects gathered in what was then the small town of Sarasota. The homes and buildings they designed demonstrate an important artistic vision. Bill Dudley talks with three contemporary architects about the importance of the architectural style of mid-20th century Sarasota. They looked to the climate. They looked to modern ideas about technology, about space, and how you would potentially live in a house. So they were really trying to invent something completely new. Sarasota architect Joe King is co-author of a forthcoming book, Paul Rudolph, The Florida Houses. The story begins, he says, when the Harvard-trained Rudolph came to town in the 1940s to partner with fellow architect Ralph Twitchell. In the years after World War II, these two architects, Ralph Twitchell and Paul Rudolph, worked to try to create a new architecture for southwest Florida. There was no air conditioning in the late 40s and early 50s. Tampa architect John Howey. This determined a lot of the designs. They had large glass areas, louvers, this sort of thing. They used great overhangs, and the house was oriented so that you could take advantage of the the winds from the Gulf of Mexico in, in the early evening, and it was really a pleasant situation because the architects were very cognizant of 
of what they had to do for the climate, and the living was, was really quite good in these new houses that the Sarasota architects designed. A few years ago, Howie authored what has become the definitive book on the phenomenon known as the Sarasota School, a philosophy that rejected the heavy Mediterranean styles popular in Florida from the 1920s in favor of airy, unadorned buildings that often featured flat roofs, large quantities of glass, and innovative use of then-new materials such as aluminum. Basically, it was having architecture that responded to the environment. It was using materials honestly, uh, not fake, you know, formica that looks like marble, but, but using materials honestly with their full integrity. The way of building and respecting the land and respecting people as they live with the land. Architect Carl Abbott has maintained an office in Sarasota since the 1950s. Howie's book lists him as one of the founders of the Sarasota School, which, according to Abbott, represented a unique synthesis of the boxy international style of the German Bauhaus with the organic ideas of Frank Lloyd Wright. The international style said everything we build with is affected by the machine. So express the machine in your building with all your building components. The earth would be here and the building would be separate from the earth. Wright said everything we build with originally came from the earth. No matter what happened to it, express the fact that it came with the earth and the way you use it. Right would do a building that's nestled into the earth, like on the side of a hill. These are two totally different philosophies. And these two philosophies melded in two places in the world. And one was Sarasota, the other was L.A. And that's the significance. It was happening in other places with one or two architects, but it happened in a big way here, in this very tiny town it was in those days, and in Los Angeles. The result of World War II was everybody was eager to get back to work there was a lot of energy and a lot of desire for a new lifestyle. It was a totally uh, disorganized thing. It was just by chance that the whole thing happened, but Sarasota was a, was a great spot for it. It was very cultural. They had um, artists, sculptors, uh, writers. So you had this group that was open and receptive to creative thinking that you'd find in architecture. Now considered one of the most important architects of his time, Paul Rudolph left Sarasota after 20 years to teach at Yale University, heading a school that trained some of today's most influential architects. Former students are now designing high-profile buildings in Hong Kong, Honolulu, and the major cities of Europe and all with ideas pioneered by the architects of the Sarasota School. Such things as the redesign of the British Museum, the Rogstadt in Berlin, the Parliament Building. This was a classmate studying under Paul Rudolph at Yale who did this. So the influence is more than just the little area of southwest Florida. It's international. Although Sarasota School buildings incorporate many different approaches, all have a kind of environmental logic that still makes sense in an age when air conditioning is the norm and our residential landscape in Florida is dominated by what one critic calls Mediterranean mech mansions. You know, the MedRev or whatever you want to call them, Taco Bells, I've heard every kind of name used on them, certainly have nothing to do with the environment here. They're almost a Disney version of what can, one can be and do and live grandly. I think you learn from your more recent architectural periods and I think there's a lot more to be learned from the Sarasota school of architecture than Mediterranean because it's local. I mean, it was done locally and was the response to what was really here rather than a stylistic response to something that was way away from here with a totally different climate. Today, it's estimated that less than 50 of the Sarasota School buildings still exist, and many are in disrepair. 
a fact which architect Carl Abbott feels is out of proportion to their importance in history. You know, cities like Savannah, Charleston, Natchez, they all have tours to see their homes or houses or public buildings, mainly homes in those cases. We have the same legacy here. It's a different period. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please visit us online at myfloridahistory.org and join us right here again next week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.